0: but it's something which
1: is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM and available as a podcast at the city, FM.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. How is gentrification and neighborhood change related to urban waterfront transformations? We'll look at this issue um, in, the, in the San Francisco context uh, with Jasper Rubin as we bring you special content from the Gentrification and the City Speaker Series uh, from Fall 2013. This is the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. And welcome to the program here on CITR and syndicated on CJSF. On today's program, uh, we're going to be hearing from Jasper Rubin, uh, discussing gentrification and the waterfront. And Jasper Rubin is Associate Professor of Urban Studies and Planning at the San Francisco State University. And this talk uh, was recorded on November 7th, 2013 at uh, Douglas College in New Westminster, B.C.
0: Peter uh, asked me to talk about gentrification on the waterfront and of course being from San Francisco uh, my focus will be on my watery front door. Uh, but this is an interesting thing because of course gentrification is usually associated uh, with residential neighborhoods and usually involves displacing renters uh, with occupants of, <coughs> of new uh, ownership housing. And there's very little housing on San Francisco's waterfront because I'll, I'll show you. Uh, and unlike some others uh, in America, Baltimore, Boston, New York all built a lot of housing on their waterfronts. Uh, and what there is, what housing there is, didn't displace any renters or anyone else, particularly. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about why this is the case a bit later. Uh, but make no mistake, San Francisco's waterfront has experienced significant transformation uh, since 1950, uh, and it's about to be further revitalized. We'll sort of, I'm going to leave a question at the end. I'm not going to tell you what I think it's good or bad. I haven't decided yet, but and you, can, you can draw your conclusions. Uh, so, how in this instance can we associate gentrification with the waterfront? Well, I focused on San Francisco as a case, to sequest- the question does create the opportunity to think about gentrification a little differently, uh, to consider it more broadly, uh, to stretch it as a term. If gentrification is, as it has been described, the nice edge or leading edge of contemporary, if I would say, neoliberal urbanization, uh, does limiting the term to that narrow definition, that residential context make sense? And how does looking at San Francisco's waterfront in this regard open, up, uh, open things up? So I'm going to do sort of four things in this talk, just to so kind of keep dropping. I'm going to talk a little bit about gentrification and new ideas about gentrification, uh, give you some stats and figures about how San Francisco is being affected right now as a city, uh, <coughs> the, the big pressures of gentrification, some of the history of what happened in the 1960s in particular uh, on San Francisco's waterfront, which really generated the current context. And then we'll talk about what's happening now. So that's the sort of four steps. Uh, so gentrification. Uh, the phrase was coined by British sociologist with glass in 1964, and I'm going to let her define it for us. This is what she said. Uh, one by one, many of the working class neighborhoods of London have been invaded by the middle classes, upper and lower. Shabby, modest, and cottages, two rooms up and down, have been taken over when the leases have expired and have become elegant, expensive residences. Once this process of gentrification starts in a district, it goes on rapidly until all or most of the original working class occupiers are displaced, and the whole social character of the district is changed. Uh, Neil Smith, who was uh, perhaps or was perhaps the uh, most well known among academic urbanists talking about gentrification, described it this way. By gentrification, I mean the process by which working class residential neighborhoods are rehabilitated by middle class home buyers, landlords, and professional developers. I make the distinction between gentrification and redevelopment. Redevelopment involves not rehabilitation of old structures, but the construction of new buildings on previously developed land. And as we'll see, this has changed quite a bit, uh, that idea of gentrification. So the main features are there's displacement. uh, (coughs) It's the residential neighborhood changes in character. Existing building stock is improved. That's sort of the classic notion of gentrification. And a couple of main mechanisms associated with what makes this happen the first is production or economic. There's something called a rent gap. Right? So when the current use is not generating as much income as it could, uh, if the use were changed, then a landlord perceives that there's money to be gained. So if he's getting a limited amount of rent, but if he were to turn his property into, uh, say, rental, and to turn it into the property into to uh, home ownership and see significant rent remains, at some point the difference between what he's getting and what he could get is big enough. The incentive is there to sell a property. The other side is the consumption, or cultural side of things. So the idea here is that where people sort of want a new lifestyle. They want to live in a diverse neighborhood. And they (coughs) want to have a sort of a lifestyle experience. uh, And they want access to restaurants and of people, that kind of thing. It's a lifestyle choice. And typically, you see both these things happening at the same time. And in the process, I think most people are familiar with the idea that it's usually initiated by artists or lower middle class professionals who use sort of sweat equity to improve their property, so it's their own labor and their own sort of know-how. And as things change organically, uh, landlords see the improvements that are being made, and the sort of rent gap grows, and things start to change. But gentrification is now understood to be much more complex and dynamic. Uh, for instance, uh, we recognize that when residents change, the rest of the neighborhood is likely to change as well. Shops and services are displaced. Uh, <coughs> Uh, or change to satisfy the requirements and the consumption habits of new wealthier uh, population, and this happened all over San Francisco. Uh, most famously, Mission District, which, which has been uh, a stronghold of the Latino community and working class neighborhoods, and as the tech sector boomed and folks living in the neighborhood, the cheap Rio zones were replaced with fancy restaurants with names like Foreign Cinema. So we get retail gentrification, uh, markets serving everyday needs of working populace replaced by. High-end, high-end merchandisers of things like artisanal breads, homegrown grown mushrooms, jar, heirloom fruits, stuff that hipsters and foodies and people like me like. <laughs> uh, a friend recently told me that in New York City, uh, one way to measure this was, on uh, any of the transit lines, you go one stop past the last hip cafe and real estate prices drop. <laughs> So so that's retail gentrification, there's new build gentrification, there's some debate whether or not this incorporates any displacement, Uh, because it's new build, there's nothing there that was there. What was there was a brownfield site, or more of waterfront property, or vacant or unused parcels, so there's not any direct displacement. So researchers have argued that there's actually indirect displacement, that when you build new market rate housing in the neighborhood, uh, what's next to it gets affected, there's a price pressure on the adjacent properties, and so gentrification becomes sort of a secondary effect. And also, they talk about this uh, displacement. Right? The idea that, OK, so you're not directly displaced, but uh, the things that you had in your neighborhood that you're used to seeing uh, are disappearing. You feel alienated from your neighborhood. So you may not be priced out right away, but all of your cheap restaurants are replaced by fancy ones. The new homeowners may show lies against the renters. Uh, Cultural facilities and services disappear you get the feeling that your neighborhood is being shot to hell, and so you move. So it has the same effect. There's state-led gentrification, which generally means it's the public agency or or some public body has land, uh, and they usually form a private, part a partnership with a private entity to develop it, uh, and it's usually to pursue what in some places is called social mix policies, where the idea is they want to introduce new middle-class families into neighborhoods uh, that are sort of maybe more distressed, because it's thought that it's a good idea for middle-class people to mix with. Uh, working class folks and vice versa. Of course you'll never see working class beachheading in an elite neighborhood the process doesn't work that way. Uh, another argument used to make sort of palatable the idea of state-led gentrification uh, is the idea of give backs. So you give developers the right to build uh, and you get from them uh, something for that's a public benefit and uh, that they usually wouldn't pay for if they were going to build affordable housing. So they might provide a Extra open space, minor infrastructure improvements, uh, maybe a daycare service provided on site. Uh, <coughs> they improve, uh, make some improvements to the immediate neighborhood, and so the equation that you get is uh, you, you pay for one kind of public benefit, urban design benefits, and you give up another, one, which is affordable housing. And the problem there is that it, the former supports property values. So you, you add improvements to the neighborhood, you make things nicer, and it supports higher property values. So the underlying dynamic is that local governments have to be entrepreneurial, uh, because financial support from the state and the federal and in the US, the federal government, state government, similar to the province, state here, uh, has been substantially reduced, and the, the best way to remind you is to increasing local property taxes and real estate taxes. So encouraging development that directly or indirectly results in gentrification becomes a big, a big, a big priority. Another aspect of sort of Gentrification that doesn't fit the traditional concept is this idea of exclusionary displacement, which kind of works in the opposite direction, where the less wealthy are kept out of the place because they can't afford to live there. It's been gentrified, and so they have no access to the housing because they can't afford it. It keeps them out. So it's an exclusionary process. So uh, there are still sort of four common themes from all these things. Uh, Certain things are now associated with contemporary gentrification. And that is that there's a reinvestment of capital, more money is plugged into a place, uh, there's sort of social upgrading, where (coughs) local more high-income groups remain. The landscape has changed, the built environment is affected, uh, and there's direct or indirect displacement of lower-income groups. So definitions of gentrification have changed to reflect this, and Neil Smith, I mentioned earlier, changed his tune a little bit, and he says this. He says, no longer, the gentrification is no longer about an oddity in the housing market, but has become the leading residential edge of a much larger endeavor, the class remake of the central urban landscape. One of his protégés sort of mm-hmm. notched up one level of abstraction and said that gentrification is the, product, the production of space for progressively more affluent users, creating space for wealthier people. Uh, but even these ideas are usually associated with the residential neighborhoods, And uh, with one exception, one researcher has done some work on uh, Williamsburg in Brooklyn and identified that one result of gentrification was the displacement of industrial work. So uh, people move into a warehouse district, and that puts a lot of pressure on industrial businesses, and they're forced to relocate. And she said this is a result of gentrification, but I would say it is gentrification. It's working class people being displaced in their their job being displaced, uh, and they're being replaced by a wealthier set. And the last aspect of this is it's a scale thing. Typically, when people talk about gentrification or do research on gentrification, it's a neighborhood thing. It's a pretty small scale. But if a, a enough neighborhoods get affected by large scale forces, as I'll talk about in a minute, economic transformation, changes in technology, eventually many neighborhoods get affected by gentrification, and it really becomes whole cities are being influenced by it. And you see that there are whole large swaths of cities. And so it isn't just a neighborhood effect; it's a city. It's a city effect. So, it's something that's important to understand the scale, the impacts, as well. So, one of the things that I think is important in San Francisco's context, and I'll get to this a little bit uh, later on, is this idea of work as being an important aspect of thinking about gentrification. Uh, blue-collar workers are displaced not just by an invasion of lock dwellers, for instance, they might be displaced by new kinds of industry in San Francisco to tech boom and biomedical Folks and the tech industry workers, they like to work in brick warehouses because it's open floor plate and it's really cool and you can skateboard and ride your fixie from one workstation to the other and play pool and sleep and do all the things that 25 year old programmers do. And they don't want to do that in a traditional office building, they want to do it in an old warehouse. And so, owners of those warehouses have lots of money to make, there's lots of money on the table if they convert these. Uh, but it's so it's just as fundamentally jarring, I think, to be displaced from your job as it is to be displaced from your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> a person is both a resident and a worker, and if you live and work in the city, you, you might get doubly affected by this. You might find yourself gentrified out of your neighborhood and out of your job. Oops. So I would argue that I would argue that gentrification is perhaps too narrowly conceived. We need to stretch it to sort of think about the whole life of the world. Uh, <clears throat> and those large-scale pressures uh, you think of them as isolated things. You sort of see what's happening in your neighborhood, and you forget that there's a larger picture going on. This is happening again in San Francisco now. Uh, different neighborhoods are slowly beginning to wake up to the fact that the Google Shuttle Bus, I don't know if you know about this, but Google has like the 10th largest transportation system in the Bay Area. Uh, it's private shuttles, and it runs buses through neighborhoods. And neighbors are starting to complain about these big, white, double-decker buses going through their narrow San Francisco streets but in places where the root is established, real estate value would go up. <laughs> <laughs> what are they doing, picking up their- They're picking up Google voice. workers and they're taking them to Silicon Valley. So uh, even though, San Francisco, and I'll, I'll repeat the stat in a minute, San is actually adding more high tech jobs than Silicon Valley is, but we're also becoming a veteran community for Silicon Valley. All right, so we have this new idea of gentrification. And I'll, I'm gonna circle back to how we can use it to think about the waterfront uh, a little bit later. So, But first I want to talk about San Francisco and give you a picture of what's happening. It's, it's a very hot thing now. And it really shows you how a whole city can be affected uh, by the powers of economic transformation and how it can make a whole city go crazy. Uh, there's been a lot of media coverage, international even, on uh, new, the new tech boom and the current housing crisis. In fact, uh, I've been contacted by German public radio and Dutch TV to do talks about how crazy the tech boom is and how gentrification is happening even more rapidly than it used to. It. Um, <coughs> by all plants, San Francisco has already kind of gentrified much of it, but the process has really intensified in the last few years. Uh, you might call it hyper or super gentrification, where the already wealthier is displaced by even wealthier. Uh, San Francisco is the fastest growing large county in the U.S. Uh, the same year, uh, it added 25% of the jobs it added were all the tech sector. So it had 28,000 jobs in 2011 and 2012 when a quarter of those were high tech, more than most of the Silicon Valley added in, in the main tech sector. Uh, there's a huge construction boom happening now. There are 1.25 cranes on the skyline of San Francisco. And we have 11 million square feet of office space in the pipeline. And if you know San Francisco, the Transamerica Pyramid is about half a million square feet. So it's 22 Transamerica pyramids in the pipeline. Uh, we have 50,000 50, housing units in the pipeline. Uh, 29,000 have been approved so far, there are about 5,000 under construction. Uh, and that's a huge thing for San Francisco, which typically only produces a 1,000 units of housing in a year. We've quintupled it recently. And a vast majority of those pipeline projects, 40,000 of them, are in large buildings of 100 to 250 units. And among them are, as a new thing called micro units, the idea that these young, hip workers don't really need a lot of space. They want to be in the city, but they don't need their own private space. So you can write 300 square feet, not sure what that is in, in real measurements, but very small for $1,800 a month, and you don't have enough room for dining room table or a couch. <laughs> right. and, and this was, it was in the paper, a woman, a woman was very happy that she had this space and she didn't put a dining room table or her couch, she had a place for her laptop, mm-hmm. a futon on the floor, but she lived in San Francisco. <laughs> mm-hmm. So according to the Chronicle, of our paper, the median monthly rent in San Francisco is just about $3,400 a month. And what you get is not much, let me like tell you. That's 21% more than it was last year. And in fact, some of the biggest increases have been in the most disadvantaged neighborhoods, including Hunter's Point, uh, and in the civic center area which, where Twitter has just opened up its main offices. In some neighborhoods in San Francisco, it takes seven to eight times minimum wage to afford the average rent. <coughs> In fact, San Francisco has the most, is perhaps the most expensive metropolitan area in the US right now. And looking at, uh, this is Zillow, data source. Uh, appreciation. Here's San Francisco here. This is appreciation. So in the last year, it's appreciated about 20%, and you can see the, at the median price. It's actually, in some places, it's cost a million dollars now. And that's for 1,000 square feet. It's, it's not a palace. Uh, and along with this, of course, so only 14% of uh, homes are affordable to the uh, people with median incomes. There were almost 1,800 evictions last year. That's up 26 percent from the previous year. We get this, this is a huge pressure in San Francisco. Uh, it's a tremendous housing crisis. Uh, and it comes, though, with public policy that wants to improve places. So you don't just build houses. You want to build housing that is an environment that's more friendly to pedestrians that uh, has a diversity of uses, that attracts the right kind of consumer, and it makes places nicer, and it attracts wealthier people. Uh, and people end up being pushed to open now. So there's an entrepreneurial partnership sort of between the public sector and the public realm, and we do nice things like, uh, on the left hand side, is a, it's, it's built now, but it's a, a new presidential tower downtown, and these are the improvements that were asked of the developer, so they're widening the sidewalks, uh, putting in these little pocket parks and benches, generally making it nicer. And you know the, more, the real estate industry takes advantage of all the changes. Uh, this is a, a park that we now have about 20 or 30 of these, if not more in San Francisco, where we've given up parking spaces to little parklets and the business pays for the parklet. It just makes it more attractive. And so again, places like this, it, it affects the desirability of the neighborhood. And, and but this gentrification is spreading to neighborhoods that were previously thought impervious, uh, like Chinatown in San Francisco, which is our densest neighborhood. Now there, there's a big news story recently, an elderly couple who lived in their apartment for 35 years and had a disabled daughter were being kicked out of the building because the owner was going to convert it to condominiums. And there was a quote from a 25-year-old sort of tells you what the temperature is like. So I, She said, I feel bad for the old people being evicted, and I can see why there is so much controversy, said Allie Croco, 25, who works in finance and moved into an apartment a few blocks away this summer. But on the other hand, there's a lot of money So, I think it's hard to deny that enticing the middle of class and the to a city that doesn't produce a lot of housing uh, surely results in gentrification and displacement, as we're seeing. So, let's get round the
1: waterfront.
0: So, that kind of environment puts a lot of pressure on the rest of the city. And so, here's San Francisco's waterfront, which, as Peter was pointing out, is a, is a public agency, it's an enterprise agency, which means it's responsible for paying for itself. The areas in black are all the properties it owns. Uh, This is downtown San Francisco. And this is a a roadway called the Embarcadero, which is also a port jurisdiction. You can see there's a remnant of the old finger piers. Most of what's still industrial about San Francisco's waterfront is limited to this area down here. I'll be talking mostly about this. <laughs> so San Francisco's current waterfront, as I mentioned, isn't really like other waterfronts in North America or even the global north, I think, in that it has not been developed with office condos or towers or hotels. As I said, there's housing only two places. Instead, it's replete with open space, civic space, and a variety of entertainment options. Uh, but changes in the offing. Not that we're not going to lose public space, uh, but there are uh, specters of gentrification are uh, appearing in the broader sense that I define gentrification. But to understand what the waterfront has become, uh, and we'll get to that. Uh, it's useful to know how it got the way it is. That really set the stage for what we see now, which is actually a place that's sort of a gray area. It's resisted gentrification. It, it, it has not taken on a lot of the uses that you would associate with it. It's a very civic place, but at the same time, it's also a place where the elite have the most options for doing things and the potential projects, uh, the projects that bring potential to the waterfront, may change it more. So. Just go through some, some brief history, show some pictures of old stuff. Like many old waterfronts, San Francisco was really affected by uh, the switch to containerization. It wasn't the only thing that affected San Francisco, but it was perhaps the most obvious and most deep uh, impact. Uh, San Francisco was at the head of a peninsula that's very urbanized. It did not have enough space to handle all containers that would soon come. This is the first ship that left uh, the bay in 1958 it had a few dozen containers on it. I don't think anyone realized what sort of the harbinger of doom for San Francisco's waterfront this was. Because Oakland captured all the container freight a few years later. It was in 1969. So they're running neck and neck for a while. Oakland got a lot of federal support for its uh, to develop its facilities. San Francisco, like I said, didn't really have the space uh, to manage containers. It had less good access to the interior. It takes a little bit longer for trucks to get uh, to get from San Francisco into the interior. So it lost competition, it lost out. And what this meant was that northern waterfront area that I was showing before, where most of the old style shipping was uh, was no longer useful for its original intended purpose. So there's a great potential to change it, especially when you have a city that is losing its industrial sheen and becoming a place of finance business services. The post-industrial economy is, is uh, taking over. Here's downtown. So just a couple of, sort of case studies to show you what happened. So this is a place called Produce Market. Uh, and uh, an area also known as the front. You guys in the U.S. have a, the front. I saw that today. It was interesting. It was historical, waterfront. Similar kind of thing but bigger bigger scale than San Francisco. Uh, this is an area of sort of Rough and tumble storefronts, roller doors, places where all the sort of produce from inland would come and get redistributed, strong connections to the waterfront. Uh, there were also union halls here, and uh, places, cheap hotels for sailors, places where you could buy a grappling hook or an accordion so it was a sailor town kind of place. Uh, <clears throat> but it was also across from a set of finger piers that were no longer being used because shipping is going away. And it's next to downtown, which is bursting first thing seems to grow. There was a lot of pressure on it to change. So uh, there was a campaign to relocate. It was initiated by a very development oriented mayor and a a bunch of local businessmen who thought this would be a golden gateway to San Francisco. Uh, And whenever possible, the local newspapers would describe it as a ramshackle tumble down or otherwise beyond its useful life. And other other city agencies would pipe up, the fire department would say, Oh, we can't get our fire trucks down there. It's a life health hazard. It's got to go. And none of the businesses owned their property, so they were very vulnerable to being displaced, which is what happened. They were displaced, and they were forced to relocate. They lost the battle, even though they were represented by Casper Weinberger, I don't know, later on, the Secretary of Defense in the U.S. Uh, They were pushed to the southern stretches of the city. And what went up was a development called Golden Gateway, in fact. Uh, Very upmarket housing. Uh, and this is just the residential part of the project. You can see it's across from the, the waterfront, but also uh, offices and shops and a hotel. Uh, it began, construction began about 1960. The whole thing was built out eventually by 1984. Uh, there wasn't a lot of protest either. Uh, people didn't really, they thought about it aesthetically. They were a little worried about the height of the buildings, casting shadows, and uh, that kind of thing, but they didn't really make any comments on the impact on maritime activity or displacing workers workers and these industrial businesses. So Golden Gateway uh, completely recreated this area and it created land use conflicts with the port. Uh, a place of blue collar work was shut down uh, and turned into fancy convenings that didn't fit, doesn't fit the classic no, notion of gentrification, but it is sort of industrial commercial gentrification and new build, uh, gentr- not really new build, <coughs> definitely uh, industrial, sort of industrial gentrification. One of the ironies now is that the owners, or the people that live in these properties now, uh, have, and it just got resolved yesterday, day before yesterday. Uh, They were complaining about a new high-end apartment project being built at their doorstep, blocking their views. And I'll talk about that in a few minutes. So, big transformation. Workers pushed out, replaced by high-income residents. So again, on the theme of, we've got all this waterfront land. It's really valuable. We should be able to make a lot of money on it. One of the things that was <coughs> pursued was this idea of something called Embarcador City. Uh, it's, this is the, governor Grant. He's the father of our current governor, Jerry Grant. Uh, looking on to what would become, the idea was that we would build this new amazing waterfront out over the water. So that, that's what it looked like at the time. And that was the proposed drawing. So, uh, <coughs> and the Golden Gateway was sort of an inspiration for this. Uh, It was unveiled in 1959, and it was obviously sort of an unrestrained modernist vision of a panorama of apartment buildings, modernist shopping plazas and restaurants and boat harbors and apartment buildings and convention halls. And it was a highly symbolic vision, uh, made especially meaningful, because the Barcadere city was to spring up as new life from the spaces of the old modes of production and distribution, sort of an urban organic cycle of death and the resurrection. Uh, and even though the governor thought this was imaginative, the kind of thing California needs, it wasn't really, it didn't really happen. <clears throat> However, what it did do was send a big signal to local activists that the port was thinking of radically transforming the waterfront and maybe we shouldn't let them do it. Time this was happening, uh, other uh, wealthy folks. And if you live on a hill in San Francisco, you're bound to be wealthy, and you're also really bound to care about what happens around you because it's your views, and if that's probably what makes your property very valuable. So, these were built in the early 1960s. Uh, this is right in Fisherman's Wharf if you've ever been to San Francisco, and they're built at the base of Russian Hill, blocking some Russian Hill residents' views of the water. And it set up a firestorm of controversy among the elite. And in fact, they pressured the planning department into doing a bunch of studies. Uh, and, and thinking about reducing heights, And actually, it kind of made sense uh, that if you want to preserve the topography of San Francisco and views, you don't build tall buildings at the bottom of the hills, because then it's flat. You build tall buildings at the top, so it, it maintains the variation in height. Uh, <clears throat> and there were cries about Manhattanizing San Francisco, and we don't want to go that way. So, the planning department did, in fact, pursue restricting height and. Basically, the waterfront from Fishman's Wharf in the north down to the Bay Bridge, most of the northern waterfront, uh, was restricted to 40 feet in height, which is 13, 14 meters, something like that. And we you're looking to make as much money as possible, you can think of it as sort of a rent gap. When you think you've got real estate, it's really worth a lot. And all of a sudden, you're being told that, oh, you've only got 40 feet to build in. It, it really sort of puts a damper on things. I like it. Economically. Uh, the other thing, the other irony of the Golden well, gateway that I just talked about, and not only are they complaining about the views, but they're also complaining about the fact that legitimately that to build those condominiums would have violated the height limits that have been established on the world. They would have to seek exceptions and the items. A couple of other things happened. They've got activists and planners who are interested in the port. As we'll see this, this all gets cemented in the landscape First thing was the port was transferred from the state to the city, uh, which was important because it meant uh, that there were conditions of the transfer. So the port, when it was transferred, agreed to spend a lot of money trying to resuscitate its maritime activity down here in the industrial stretches. <clears throat> and also uh, was told that when it found property that it was not going to develop uh, as maritime, it was no longer useful for maritime, had to pursue the highest, best use. So they had to look for Development that would pay the most, which tends to be things like offices and houses. So here's a, another thing that happened: uh, was the creation of a local agency, a, a regional agency called the Bay Conservation and Development Commission. So this is a map of San Francisco. It was found by three women uh, who were very interested in the water. The bay had already been losing surface area; and most of the wetlands were destroyed. Uh, this is uh, in the late '50s, and the Army Corps of Engineer had produced a map that was discovered by uh, Sylvia Kerr and some of her friends. And they saw that uh, the idea was to basically reduce the bay to a large canal. It's just water. to fill it in and expand our cities. And this set off a huge uh, reaction. And the women that had found this map and were very vocal. They had a lot of powerful connections. They had started a very effective grassroots campaign. and took it all the way to Sacramento, uh, the state capital and we were able to convince uh, the government at the time, Ronald Reagan, to sign legislation creating a new agency, actually the first in the nation, that was going to be allowed to regulate uh, land uses based on uh, uh, permitting, uh, to regulate land uses over the water.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they actually were given the power to permit to reject or deny applications For development anywhere in the bay that covered water. And they could do two things that particularly they could restrict anything that covered the water. So if you're going to build a pier, they could say no. You're going to pier just cover the water, not just filling it. And they could disallow any use that privatized access to the water or was not maritime. So the two big things that they would reject would be office and housing. Things that they would accept would be, oddly enough, retail and hotels. Apparently, hotels are more public than private. Uh, And they have this power up to 100 feet from the median high tide. And So the port's going to pursue development anyway. Just as this was all sort of unfolding, uh, they made public, which was probably a capital error, two of the things that they were looking at. One of them was this Ford urban dealership. It was a typical dystopian suburban nightmare of a car dealership over the water with style on ramps, Links to the city, <laughs> <laughs> and this, around here, the height the, was raised eighty-four feet. That, that was part of the plan, but and their project actually met behind it. Uh, it was there was going to be a mall and restaurants and a bunch of other stuff and, and parking for forty-five hundred cars to reduce congestion. Uh, but in fact, uh, our board of supervisors, sort of like a city council, uh, rejected that in favor of. This is the best image I can find. Uh, a U.S. Steel's proposal to build a 550-foot office tower and a, a cruise terminal and a hotel that would have been much taller than this is that? of of the Bay Bridge? That's not likely that these would have been allowed by the new agency, the Bay Conservation and Development Commission, because they're not particularly maritime oriented. Although U.S. Steel stuck a cruise terminal on it, probably hoping, hey, cruise terminal is maritime. Uh, <coughs> But the controversy, again, was intense. So what these projects did was they, they really told people that this could happen to the waterfront. And so everyone was screaming about Manhattan having the waterfront, building walls on the waterfront. Uh, <coughs> and Dianne Feinstein, one of the uh, California uh, Sen- senators cut her teeth, protesting, protesting this project. She actually walked down the Embarcadero holding banners, you know, save our waterfront kind of thing. And eventually, uh, the project stopped. But there's some interesting. Uh, interesting quote, one, one of the anti-high-rise folks said, high-rises are like heroin. Once you start, you can't stop, except by drastic needs and then it's too late. That's what you. <laughs> <laughs> so this went through a big process, and eventually the planning department actually approved it. Uh, and it went to our board of supervisors, but they rejected the change in height that would have been required, so the project was killed. But as I said, uh, really, put on the map what the waterfront could become. Uh, the result was, however, that nothing happened. And the planning department, the, the Port South City agency, the planning department adopts new plans uh, that actually encourage public access. Uh, agencies around the region start producing plans that control the waterfront. BCBC adds to its folder of plans, and then all of a sudden there are five or six planning documents and policies and regulations, and everything is just frozen in place. It's so hard to do anything on the waterfront. Uh, the mayor, at the time, Mary, uh, Joseph Aligua, put it this way. He said, we effectively were embalming rotten piers. And that's essentially what happened for the next 25 years. This was San Francisco's waterfront as a result of uh, the heapings of policies and regulations that were applied there. And only a couple of things happened in that period of time until about the mid-1990s. Uh, one of them is we actually found a way to." At a public strolling pier that did in 1990. Right. And if uh, have been to San Francisco, this is Pier 39. It's the second most visited destination in California after Disney World. And it made it past all the restrictions. You, know, you can't build houses, you can't build housing, it's only about 40 feet. And you also have to include public access and open space in all of your projects. And it made it through because it's only 40 feet tall. It's retail, so it actually brings people to the water. It's surrounded by open space and access. And the guy who did this project, who was a, an ex-Pan Am pilot, uh, included a couple of marinas. So there's a the waterfront, the maritime here. And it Just finished on time. But that was it, though, for 25 years of uh-huh. So what got us out of the dolphin? And I'm going to start bringing it up to the president. Well, one of the things that happened was the court realized that there was a, there was a sort of a, a loophole in all this, and that is the hotel. Hotel projects actually generate enough money. Most other development doesn't generate enough money to do what they needed to, to do. <coughs> really, offices and housing. They're the biggest economic generators that hotels are going to do. So this was a hotel project and a sailing center that got rejected in favor of a bigger hotel. And At the same time, the port was entertaining ideas for hotels further along the waterfront. And the public said, no, wait a minute. We've seen this before. We don't want it to happen. We're going to go to the ballot. And there was a proposition placed on the ballot in 1990, Prop H, which just passed. But it passed. And what it did was two things. It It placed a moratorium on development along the waterfront. The port was no longer allowed to pursue any development. And it required them to come up with their first plan. So the port was producing its own document for the first time about what it thinks its future should be. And it's it's actually a document that was the result of seven years of planning process. So speaking to neighbors and business interests and officials from all jurisdictions. So it took seven years to produce this this plan. And one of the main aspects of the plan was that it was relying on the idea of public-private partnerships to do anything. So it's, it's got a companion document about providing open space and access. It was, the idea was also that it would help coordinate all these different agencies involved in port development. And um, it identified places where agencies like BCDC and the planning department would agree were good for commercial development. So the idea was to reduce controversy. And so some of the things that resulted from this plan were our baseball stadium, stadium for the San Francisco Giants which is, by all accounts, a pretty successful project. It's got open space access all along the perimeter. There are a couple of public clauses. Uh You can actually, there's a viewing area in the outfield, and you're allowed to watch three or four innings for free standing in front of the viewing areas. When there's no game, or when the season's out, uh, you can go into the park, and there's a playground and a big slide set for kids to play on. It was privately financed, and it's completely served by public transportation. There's very little parking associated with it. So by all accounts, it served a lot of public purposes. Uh, although, the great American tradition of baseball is extremely expensive. buy a ticket to get to the stadium. But, pretty good pretty good result of the new regime. This is the Ferry Building. This is on uh, the center of the waterfront, sort of symbolically, and <coughs> Physically, uh, all the piers to the north are odd-numbered, all the piers just outward even uh, This was built in 1899. It survived earthquakes and fires, and so it has a big place in the heart of San Franciscans, the mines of San Franciscans, uh, at the foot of Market Street, so it's sort of the you know, heartbeat, of, heartbeat of San Francisco. But it was chopped up in the 1960s and dealt with very poorly uh, for such a marvelous structure. Uh, and it was impossible to do anything with. And it had very connections that were Hard to get to, and it was not really serving its purpose. But through the policies in the, in the plan that was adopted, and through some very rigorous and sort of uh, difficult negotiations, uh, it was revitalized. What happened was that BCDC realized that applying its policies very strictly wasn't getting anywhere, that the waterfront wasn't evolving in any way whatsoever. So what they made an agreement. They said, okay, <coughs> historic preservation is a public benefit that we will support. And we will allow you to incorporate offices in this structure in order to support rehabilitation of the historic structure. So in this building, there are non-maritime offices, which are typically not allowed anywhere else. And they paid—they have paid for historic rehab, as well as a public market, and open space in the back, and an improved uh, ferry terminal back. So that was a, that's a big success. You've been to the ferry building. If you ever go to San Francisco and you go to the ferry building, you prepare to empty mm-hmm. your wallets. It's, it's, it's a high end retailing experience. Mm-hmm. Now, the one other sort of successful project that came out of this idea of public private partnerships was right next door a series of piers in the Pierhead buildings, uh, also now the home of sort of offices and high end restaurants, but also providing. Public open space. <coughs> that that kind of work only gets you so far because there's only there are only so many really valuable historic resources on the waterfront. Uh, those projects are very difficult, and so they sort of petered out. But the port staff became very good at finding money for public access things. So <clears throat> this is actually the breakwater that protects the Barrys Building. And we got uh, an extra grant to actually turn it into a public pier. This is dedicated in 2007. Uh, We've got money to develop open space. This is Rincon Park. It's it's, it's built with grant money, but its maintenance is paid for by the Gap Corporation, which has its headquarters across the street. Uh, We've built a promenade that goes the length of the Embarcadero, the Fair Building. It's down But this runs from Pritchard Wharf several miles down to the Bay Bridge. And it's very popular for bicyclists and rollerbladers and pedestrians. So we're actually producing a lot of public civic space in San Francisco. Yeah. And it's a place where the other can hang out and not get harassed, so you have sent bicyclists and get homeless folks. Although I was told by a student not long ago, she worked for uh, the 911 call center. In San Francisco, I was told that on game days, when there was a baseball game, uh, messages went out to oh, all the police officers in the area, and they were told to sweep the homeless away, either relocate them or physically move them, so that when people came into the game, they wouldn't be confronted with urban life in its fullest. So this is a waterfront for the people. They created civic space right at the foot of the financial district. Right. Otherwise, the pressures were extreme uh, to build out the city. Uh, (coughs) So in some ways, yes. Uh, I forgot. We built built, the two places we built housing. This is Delancey Street. Uh, This is not far from the the baseball stadium. It's transitional housing for people who are recently coming out of incarceration. So it's ultra affordable housing. Uh, And that was required state legislation, legislative action to allow housing on this parcel. The other place we have housing uh, was associated with a failed attempt to build a cruise terminal. here. So this is the very building. Uh, but the high-end housing associated with it that was gonna pay for the public benefits was built, uh, but nothing else was. So we have one instance of ultra affordable housing and one instance of very high-end housing. So it's a, it's a gray area. The thing is that what I'm finding is that if the space is active, if it's got restaurants or other things that you can do, it takes money. And so therefore, if you have more money, you have more access to a wider variety of activity on the waterfront. The stuff that's more civic and more accessible to everyone is the passive space. You can walk along here, or you can stroll or have a picnic. So there's, a, there's, a, there's a slight differentiation among uses. So what's happening to the waterfront now? I'm going to talk about four projects that are on the books right now, although one of them, as I was saying, has been ended by about uh, <coughs> one So again, this is the waterfront. So the condo project, we'll talk about first. Uh, an arena for our basketball team, a uh, development of a large parcel. This is uh, a great building, here's the baseball stadium. And then a, a proposal for the southern waterfront closer to where our industrial uses are. So this is Washington. I mentioned this before when I was talking about the produce market. The proposal was for about 130 ultra-high-end condominiums. And we're talking, this would have been the most, probably the most expensive housing in the city for a development, with apartments ranging anywhere from 2 to $10 million for a bedroom or two. With uh, 350 parking places in a place that's highly accessible by transit <clears throat> and uh, very pedestrian friendly, even though there's a big roadway, pretty pedestrian friendly. The people in the Golden Gateway apartments behind it complained about this. They complained about the heights, they complained about the fact that uh, the neighborhood housing wasn't really serving the neighborhood, uh, and they, they just didn't like it. And the proponents of the project were saying, well, look, we're getting rid of a private tennis club that's been surrounded by ugly green fences. And we are bringing open space to the neighborhood. Uh, and it was really hard to tell who was telling the truth. It turns out that maybe some of that open space wasn't really going to be that public, because it wasn't being controlled by the and Park Department in San Francisco. It was private open space. So they were going to shut it down after six. And, you know, there was lots of misinformation and a lot of bad And it went to the polls. You know, two ballot measures were placed on a, on a November ballot. And it, yeah, yesterday, two days ago, I had to update my talk because it got crushed with poles. It was rejected, soundly rejected. So there will be no housing here on the waterfront uh, for the ultra wealthy, and uh, the developer's going to have to go back to the the table. And it was, you know, this is a it was a LEED certified building with a living green wall. And it had all the fancy stuff you could buy. As a of the project, you see, as a as, as a scale of buildings, it's not. It's, 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 you are this is the Embarcadero Center, the office complex. And this is the Golden Gate. So, as a physical use, I have no problems with it. But the two problems that, that I thought were issues were the amount of parking being associated with it, and the fact that there was no affordable housing on site whatsoever. The way we work in San Francisco is we we give developers the option to paid into a fee. They pay fees. It's an fee. fees. So like you pay several million dollars into a, uh, a fund that the city then uses to develop affordable housing elsewhere. So if you don't have affordable housing here, then you've created a space just for the wealthy. Right? Poor folks don't get to live next to the wealth. But it's not. So here's the golden gate. <coughs> so the golden gate warriors. This is the new proposal uh, built out on an existing pier, which has been sort of uh, you know, earlier, earlier on today I called it the Bermuda Triangle of Port Property, because at least a half a dozen projects have been tried here and failed. Nothing seems to work, because the cost of seismically upgrading the pier structure keeps rising. And when this project was first proposed, it was about $70 million to repair this pier structure. It's now doubled. And the city was offering to pay up to $120 million that. Uh, <clears throat> so that was part of the controversy. So the so Basketball Arena, uh, it was going to uh, include, it's going to, the proposal to include residential tower and a hotel tower and retail space here. And it's proven to be very controversial because the neighborhood that's been growing up in this area, which is quite gentrified, partly as a result of the Giants. When the Giants baseball stadium was built, people wanted to live near it. And uh, the old warehouses and the old brick buildings became even more popular. There's a lot of housing being built here. And a lot of the folks moving into this housing are complaining about the idea of traffic congestion being generated by the basketball area and all the events that would happen when there the reason came. And then, of course, there are folks, I mean, it's actually quite a, stri- quite a striking structure uh, designed by Snowhead, which is a hot firm from Denmark. And there are folks who said, well, this is just another big structure over the water. Why right? do we need that? Why right? can't we build it somewhere else in San Francisco? So and give us a 50-50 chance for it Large seawall lot, uh, which means that there was a seawall here and that filled in towards the bay. A fair amount of land here against, I don't know, five or six hectares, 14 acres. I forgot that I was coming to a country with real measurement units and I didn't convert those in my area (laughs) (laughs) to hectares and meters. Uh, so the proposal here is for giant mixed use development with fancy kind of million towers. Uh, mixed uses and a lot of open space. So this, this is the open space plan for the, the area, full of sort of active and passive recreation uses. Uh, there's a, a pier, Pier 48, that's associated with it, um, which is up here. And they've already got a contract to bring in Anchor Steam. Anchor Steam San Francisco. Is a very loved local brewing company. They're going to expand their operations and put in a fancy restaurant into the pier. But it's quite, it's quite attractive and beautiful, potentially the same. But when you see an image like this, you realize that this is a fairly gentrified kind of space. Lots of happy people shopping in restaurants. And clearly, it's going to be quite expensive housing in a new build, gentrification sort of environment. This is in the approval process. Last thing, just down here in the central waterfront, the place that I was wearing bulb with the long time. This is a neighborhood that is still part of what is San Francisco's industrial heritage. This is a, a still an active dry dock. It's the West our West Coast only dry dock. Uh, this is where we consolidated most of our shipping activity. We get a few containers. Most of what we have is break bulk, It's things that don't fit in containers, some liquid bulb. Uh, construction material like that. And this is Pier 70, which is right next to the dry off, And it's about 50 acres, so maybe 25, 20 or 25 hectares of space that is up for grabs, but the port wants to develop. The thing is, this neighborhood, generally speaking, it was a place, at least 10 years ago, uh, of 6,000 jobs and 800 residents. And when I was a planner, we were trying to figure out a way to introduce housing but preserve space for the industrial users and the blue-collar jobs that were associated with it. So we eventually, we came up with a plan that sort of said, "Okay, the northern part of the area, we'll let that go to mixed use and housing across from the Spear 70 development." And stuff in the south, we're going to try and put a lock using the blunt tool of zoning to preserve the industrial users and the jobs they're associated with down here. But so this is the kind of development that's been occurring in the northern part: new loft uses and fancy apartments. And what you see in the south is this kind of thing active, busy streets, lots of industrial uses. So here's Pier 70. Even up to the 1950s, it was very active. We built most of our Pacific wharf in here, uh, incredibly industrial. But eventually, uh, with the Navy uh, shutting down operations and other large scale issues, it, uh, transitions. So here is it yeah. is Drive out, and this is Pier 7 here. It's, it's home to the United States, I think west of the Mississippi. It's the most important collection of historic industrial structures in the U.S., west of the Mississippi. So, one of the big public pushes is to preserve the beautiful industrial buildings that are there. And so, this is inside a machine shop, and they would manufacture giant rudders and things like that for ships. So, this is actually happening now. There's been a Developers have selected, they're now doing everything they can to preserve the building. It's literally falling apart. It's been raided by thieves and all the coppers been pulled out, that. anything that's of value is stripped. Uh, but the structure is still there. And the idea is that they want to convert this into a place of mixed uses, retail, uh, office, and they say some kind of industrial user. Although I think that the, they're not going to be able to afford that because what it costs to preserve a building like this and rehabilitate it is astronomical. And there's no way that any amount of space devoted to, to sort of real production, sort of real manufacturing, anything that's you know, like that—they'll never pay it. They'll never do it. Most users of that can afford a few
1: dollars a square foot.